Hey, thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope you and your family are safe during these unprecedented times. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to take a minute to give a shout out to our sponsor. If you're building in the blockchain space, then I want you to know about a company called Blockset. I've been speaking with their team closely, and I have no doubt that they are going to enable the next wave of developers and business leaders to build amazing applications. Blockset offers accessible data from all the major chains through easy-to-use API. It acts as your hosted blockchain infrastructure. It ultimately enables high-quality apps to be built at a fraction of the cost at a fraction of the time. Go sign up for a free account at blockset.com and start building today. Stay tuned for more information later in the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning into The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. And we are very excited for today's episode. Before we kick things off, I just want to take a moment to thank all the folks who've tuned into today's episode. It's been a wild run. 2020 was exciting. We tried to deliver guests and insights that were of value to you. And we're glad you're still with us in the new year. And for new folks, thanks for tuning in. It's It's been really rewarding to see the numbers for the beginning of this year and to see that we are, you know, humbly, I say this at the top of the charts in Ireland. So, you know, to those folks listening in from Ireland, I say Salatra or Salatra, whatever the, the saying is that you guys have, uh, welcome aboard. Humbly, this Italian-American appreciates you listening in. I feel like since I began covering this space, the one question that I've been asking, you know, market participants is when hedge funds, when institutional investors, when is the big money going to get off the sidelines and enter the market? And what's been interesting about 2020 has been the fact that we've seen many of those investors enter the nascent space, but they don't necessarily look like exactly what I thought they would. It's not so much to a degree, it is like the Bridgewaters of the world or the Millenniums of the world, but we're seeing different types of investors or asset allocators that I didn't expect. And that runs the gamut from you know endowments to publicly traded companies looking to invest in Bitcoin as part of a sort of treasury allocation type of strategy, and then insurance funds. And so the guest we have on today, Robert, goes by Robbie Gutman, the CEO of NYDIG or NYDIG. I prefer NYDIG, but we'll, we'll have him settle on that. They're kind of at the heart of it all. And if, if you're not necessarily paying close enough attention, then you might have missed the headline they made earlier, or rather late last year. They helped insurance giant Mass Mutual, Massachusetts Mutual Life Insurance Company, buy $100 million worth of Bitcoin for their general insurance fund. They also made a $5 million investment into NYDIG. And so we're going to unpack a lot of that. But first, because NYDIG is so much an institutionally focused company, you may not have heard of them or you, and you may not know how wide ranging their business is. Robbie, who's on the other side of the mic, break it down for us. Frank, good to, good to be here today. You weren't kidding so about great. the podcast voice. No, no. God, yeah, it's, it's a different really got in character. A little, character. More, I, a little I got more chills. nasally, a little more nasally, a little more maybe 
um, you know, not, not seductive is the right word. Certainly not seductive, <laughs> but, you know, sultry. I'm, I'm feeling Maybe a little sultry. single. Well, that's, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Set you up perfectly to talk about what you guys are working on. Sure. Well, and thanks again for uh, having me here today. Uh, really appreciate the work you do. Love the podcast, love the writing, uh, and really grateful to, to be here today. So at NYDIG, uh, which is what, what we prefer. Uh, it's we, kind of like a NYSE New York Stock Exchange. You know, I remember when I was working at NASDAQ, it was kind of like NYSC or, or NYSE, and no one could really agree on you know, which one was the preferred way to refer to the company. I feel like you might, you might have something similar going for you guys. Sure. Well, uh, we should, we should be so lucky, so fortunate to uh, achieve the brand impact of a NYSE or a New York Stock Exchange. So I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. We're hopefully well, well on our way. So as you mentioned, we are an institutionally focused technology and financial services provider for Bitcoin. As I think you and I have, have spoken about before, I am a co-founder of a company called Stone Ridge, which was started with another fellow co-founder named Yen Zhao, who you'll be hearing from a, a fair amount. And the founder and CEO is a, a guy named Ross Stevens, who recently wrote a, a year-end shareholder letter that if you haven't read, uh, you should take the opportunity to find it online and read. I, I've liked them all every year. This was, of course, one of my favorites. Stone Ridge Holdings Group is a financial technology holding company. We have three operating businesses under the, the Stone Ridge Holdings Group. The first and still the largest today is a business called Stone Ridge Asset Management, uh, which is a fairly traditional institutional alternative asset manager based in, in Midtown Manhattan, where, where I am today. Uh, and we, we manage money for about 100 institutional allocators uh, across a variety of strategies. And another of the businesses under the Stone Ridge Holdings Group umbrella is NYDIG, and that is our, our Bitcoin-focused subsidiary. And the genesis of NYDIG really started when we started to accumulate Bitcoin for our own balance sheet at the Stone Ridge Holdings Group as part of our treasury strategy. And what we found at the time, which was you know 2015 into 2016, is there weren't there weren't really any service providers that met our needs around accumulating and uh, storing the Bitcoin. And we had we had fairly particular needs at the time, based on the nature of being a, a highly regulated institutional asset manager. And so ra rather than just not do it, um, I, I think you know this gives you a sense of the kind of people we are. Uh, we we set out on a project to to build all the capabilities we needed in-house. And so that really focused uh, initially that project on three parts. First was how, how we actually buy the Bitcoin, how we turn our dollars into cryptocurrency uh, in a way that uh, met all the stakeholder requirements. Then once once we have turned our dollars into Bitcoin, how, how we store the Bitcoin, how we do the private key management, and in particular, how we do that in such a way as to facilitate uh, big four audit which had some challenges at the time, but uh, was, was an exciting project. And then the, the third element of that work uh, was, you know, in, in a lot of ways, deeply unsexy, but, but has become some of our most valuable IP, is a, a set of accounting work around how to actually account for the Bitcoin on our balance sheet, all the way up to and including consulting with the SEC, the Office of the Chief Accountant, on, on some questions and ultimately getting clarity that's been very useful to us on a go-forward basis. So in a sense, you're, you guys are now kind of helping firms that have a similar profile, maybe to Stone Ridge, 
acquire Bitcoin, whether it's for the funds which they are investing on behalf of LPs for or their own treasury, et cetera. That's right. Well, up to today, you know, standing here at the beginning of 2021, as you mentioned in your in your opening, the business has grown quite a lot and is fairly broad. And, and so we, we organize it into three parts. So the first is what we call market solutions. This is really about providing liquidity to the market and to our clients. And what's changed a lot here, I'd say over the last year, is our ability to commit our balance sheet to getting our clients into and out of positions. And that's that's grown from just spot liquidity to derivatives liquidity, financing. It really runs the gamut of all of the fundamental kinds of financial services that would underpin any traditional market. The the second business is is what we call investor solutions, which is really what what grew out exactly as as you mentioned, it is about helping institutional investors allocate their portfolios to Bitcoin. They're about half that business looks like traditional asset management, like the Stone Ridge asset management business. We we manage commingled vehicles. We have a separately managed account platform. Uh, we're able to structure funds of one for for people that have large enough allocations and for whom that's valuable. And then uh, the other half of that business looks more like a prime brokerage business. So people want to trade a little more actively. They want to use a little more financing. They have slightly different reporting needs, but it's all underpinned by the same custody, execution, derivatives, data capabilities uh, across the entire platform. Yeah. And to, yeah. And to break that down, maybe for the more novice listener, at the end of the day, what you guys are trying to do is equip, you know, institutions, funds, publicly traded companies, insurance firms with what they need to acquire Bitcoin. That's exactly right. And, you know, in into 2021, we, we see, and so that, that business grew very rapidly in 2020 and then continues to accelerate growth in, in 2021. And we've also seen a lot of growth in, in the third part of our business, uh, which we made some news about recently, which is where we, we work with uh, existing uh, financial services incumbents to integrate our platform so that they can bring Bitcoin and Bitcoin-related capabilities to their end clients. So we call that third business platform solutions. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of different players that are looking to get into that market to effectively service the back end of Bitcoin type services that are offered by, you know, fintechs or banks or community banks. And the list goes on. You have one example maybe being Ipit and Paxos providing their technology to, to PayPal is one example. Before maybe we get into that business, I want to focus on on the news that kind of made really big headlines, right? In the Wall Street Journal that was Mass Mutual would jump into the Bitcoin market vis-a-vis NYDIG. I'm curious how something like that comes together. And I'm hearing rumblings. Mike Novogratz was on the show yesterday or, or two days ago talking about how there are two other insurance firms that he knows of that are looking to make a similar move, maybe investing uh, some Bitcoin into their general um, insurance funds. So what is the thinking behind a firm doing that, an insurance firm doing that, especially one as large as Mass Mutual? And then how do you get them from point A to B? How does that process look like? 
Sure. Well, it really starts at the highest level with, you know, I'd say the thoughtfulness and the boldness and the forward thinkingness of, in, in, in Mass Mutual's case, the CEO and the CIO. Um, and I, I have to give both of them and their entire team a huge amount of credit. Um, you know, I, I think I agree with Mike, you know, both actually and generally, you're going to see a lot of dominoes fall after this. But to be the first one just takes a huge amount of courage. That's really where where it starts. From a thesis perspective, in the end, you would have to ask them, I'll give you my perspective, which is, you know, they really focus each and every day when they wake up in the morning on how do they deliver on their obligations to their policyholders? Like that, that is their first principle. And I think they think, and I don't disagree with them, that based on the macroeconomic backdrop that you have on the on the back of 2020, that they can't go forward just buying corporate credit, um, which is generally what insurance general accounts do primarily. And be confident that they can make good on their obligations to their to their policyholders. And so it 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 really starts with they know their purpose and they're they're gonna fulfill it. And so how do they back solve for an investment portfolio and an investment program that lets them do that? And in in particular, if they think the purchasing power of the dollars in which their liabilities are denominated are gonna go down, then it, it makes a lot of sense to them. Uh, and for them to make an allocation like this. Mm-hmm. When you have an event maybe like this past weekend where we saw a ton of volatility grip the marketplace, how do firms like that react and, and how do they prepare for that, right? Because I'm sure that's something that it's not like they would have been super surprised by an event like that, but I'm sure maybe some of their clients, their end clients, when they see that they've invested in Bitcoin and then Bitcoin's, you know, collapsing, they maybe get scared. So how does that type of incurrence get get factored into the decision process? Sure. Well, I, I think anyone that invests in Bitcoin, and Mass Mutual is no exception, has to be prepared for a 20% drawdown. And you know, if anything, that's, that's light based on history's experience. And so they and all our clients go in eyes open to that. You know, without commenting on any specific client's activity, I would say our clients generally are long-term accumulators, you know, it's a fancy way of saying hodlers, and generally have just started their accumulation uh, relative to where I think the final position sizing gets. Uh, and so, for example, we shared with you some statistics yesterday. Our order flow over the 48-hour period Sunday to Monday was 89% buy orders. And, and so, you know, it's just, just an opportunity to accumulate more 20% below where it had been before. And I think that was kind of the case across the market. You saw a lot of institutional buying over the weekend as, as Bitcoin was, you know, cratering. Um, and now they are reaping the reward of that discipline. We're at, we're at around... 29,600 at the time of recording. Right. Where do you go to from here? I imagine that after that news came out, maybe that helped some conversations move down the pike. Maybe the phones rang with, with other types of insurance firms looking to maybe make some sort of allocation, maybe not. What has 
What has the pipeline looked like since the Mass Mutual news? Yeah, it, it's definitely grown. The you know one one of the natures of working in this segment and in institutional finance generally, the the sales cycles are pretty long. So there there are no you know multi hundred billion dollar general account life and annuity companies that I'm aware of that see an article in the Wall Street Journal and pick up the phone and say, I want to do that. They certainly might pick up the phone and say, you know, I'd like to learn more. And and we are we are seeing lots of that. Lots of conversations in progress that that continue to pro- progress. You know, I I do think across institutional investor land generally, we have started to sense from a behavioral perspective, I, I think the career risk of some decision makers starting to switch from long to short. You know that that is before if they thought their their career risk was to do it, and so while they might have believed it was the right thing to do for the portfolio, they didn't necessarily feel the internal buy-in. That's starting to to flip to go the other way, where there it's it's now starting to set up where it's some career risk not to be allocated. And that's a pretty significant shift. I mean, like to go from the career risk being allocating to not allocating. Absolutely. And and again, these are not, at least our clients, are not organizations that that move quickly. They move thoughtfully. They do all their work. It's an extensive amount of work. But once they make a decision, they go and they go big. Mm. You don't have any reckless clients at all. I, I'm certainly not aware of any reckless clients. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's double click on this for a second. So you have a number of potential firms that want to get more educated on this space from the insurance world. It sounds like across, I'd say institutional investors generally. I mean, we we mm-hmm. tend to divide the world up in a fairly traditional asset management perspective. You know, you you have your you know very long term allocators, your pensions, your endowments, your foundations, your insurance company general accounts. You know, they tend to think about the world somewhat similarly sure. from a thought process and an investment process perspective. Each of them has, you know, unique needs from an accounting form factor structuring perspective, all all of which we have expertise in based on our backgrounds. How do a large hedge fund maybe think about making a Bitcoin allocation differently from an insurance firm? Depends on the nature of the hedge fund. Uh, you know, so obviously in, in 2020, you saw a number of macro hedge funds making allocations and the principals making allocations. So I, I think there it fits quite neatly into their macroeconomic framework. Um, and it's it's a you know fairly common, I'd say, dollar depreciation trade. They might or might not by mandate have quite as long-term a horizon as an insurance company, as a life insurance company, you know, which which has, depending on how you think of it, a you know, 30 to 100 to infinity year horizon. We also do some work with some more quantitatively driven funds, which tend to view it more on a data-driven signal-based mindset. So basically, it not only depends on whether it's an insurance firm or a hedge fund, but but even the type of hedge fund. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. There, are, you know, lot lots of different types of hedge funds. There, there are even different types of insurance companies, obviously, um, and and each of these firms, based on their mandate and structure, has a different way of thinking about the 
thinking about the, the world, thinking about their investment portfolio and thinking about a Bitcoin allocation. And I'd say that's, that's one of the values we provide to our clients is we just have a lot of background in knowing what those various mindsets are, both generally and specifically, and being able to structure solutions that, that work for them. So how do you close on a deal like that? What does that process look like? Because there are other folks whom they can go to. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and we're, as, as you and I discussed before, <laughs> definitely bigger pie people. Uh, you know, we think Bitcoin could be, uh, you know, many trillion dollar asset class. And so the more viable professional service providers out there, the, the better vibrant community of, of people providing services here. So I'd say there's really two parts to it. So part one is, uh, you know, why Bitcoin or Bitcoin? Yes, no. Often, if you're involved in that conversation, you have a natural leg up on the second conversation, which is with whom. And, you know, there, I think part of the reason our clients choose us is one, there's a service provider mindset that's really just born out of institutional finance. You know, we've been in the asset management business for a long time. And so, if people that are used to consuming asset management services, commingled funds, funds of one, separately managed accounts. We just have a very natural way. I mean, we have a product that works, uh, works well, and a natural way of, of describing it and telling it. Mm-hmm. And then I, I think, you know, an, another reason our clients choose us is, you know, there, exactly as you said, there are, there are lots of firms out there you can call today and say, hi, I want to buy and hold some Bitcoin. And at this point, I feel pretty good in saying, you know, they're not going to lose the Bitcoin. Um, and that's that's often what I tell people. I, I think if your needs extend to anything beyond that, the air starts to get a little thinner. So if if you need, if you want to talk about financing, if you want to talk about a derivatives mandate to generate yield or hedge a position or mitigate volatility, um, or if you want to talk about a particular accounting challenge that you have that requires a specific form factor. If you have a regulator you need to talk with to get their blessing or at least inform them, those are all kinds of things that we can do and we have integrated in-house across our offering that go beyond a simple buy and hold Bitcoin. And you guys are just Bitcoin, right? We are Bitcoin focused. That's right. And so what's the sort of thinking behind that? Are you guys exploring other assets in the crypto world? And are your clients maybe asking you guys to offer things that maybe um, touch Ethereum or, or other assets beyond that? So I, for, for me, I can only speak to the conversations I have, and then I can share with you my, my opinion. I, you know, 100 out of 100 of the last conversations I've had with investors seriously looking to allocate, let's say, over $50 million, 100% of those conversations have been about Bitcoin, and 0% of them have been about any other crypto asset. So part of it is just an empirical market response. The other part of it is, you know, at least for me and, and for us, I think there's a personal aspect to it, which is, I think, starting from first principles, the idea of an open source money, that's a really powerful idea and solves a fund, in our opinion, a fundamental 
societal challenge. And I'd say for me, certainly 2020 shifted my perspective from like, huh, you know, that's that's a neat idea that might be a thing to no, we're going to have an open source money. Like the world is going to agree on a standard open source money. And second, I think it is hard to argue that it's going to be anything other than Bitcoin at this point. I think it's just, it's reached escape velocity, network effect, whatever you want to call it. And so I think, you know, I don't, I don't need to see anything else fail, but I don't see anything else out there that, at least in my opinion, addresses such a fundamental societal challenge, nor do I see anything as fundamentally well-designed to solve the issue that it addresses. If you're a listener of The Scoop or follow The Block, then you know I am super excited about the future of crypto adoption, especially on the enterprise side. Our sponsor, Blockset, is not only helping to push development at the grassroots level with their multi-chain API, but also at the institutional level. Blockset is built by BRD, the first crypto wallet in the App Store from 2014, and one of the largest in the space today. They've taken the architecture and the knowledge they've gained over the past six years to create Blockset, a robust, reliable, and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Blockset is enabling banks and other major financial institutions to interface and build with crypto assets at light speed. See just how simple it is by visiting Blockset.com and sign up for a free account today. You've been involved in the Bitcoin market and by involved, I think you purchased your first Bitcoin as far back as 2010. That's right. I, I had a, a patient zero uh, a, a roommate of mine at the time, we were, were both working on Wall Street and he was like, dude, have, have you seen Bitcoin? Um, so that was, that was my first introduction. To be totally honest about it, that was really my first like, huh, that's, that's a neat idea. That might be a thing. And to be totally honest, I, I kind of forgot about it. Um, and it, it re-entered my world. So that same patient zero actually uh, left his job at, I think at Goldman Sachs to go work at Ripple actually. And that was really when I, I first was like, oh, there, there are others. Um, and, and so that, that kind of reintroduced the, the landscape to me. And, you know, that was really the beginning of the process that, you know, and I'd forgotten about it, you know, went, we started Stone Ridge, I got married. And then maybe three years into, two or three years into Stone Ridge, it just kept bubbling up, kept, kept talking about it, and, you know, really made the decision that, that we should own more of this. And how did you kind of convince the rest of the firm um, at Stone Ridge that this was something you guys should do and it'd be worth your time and worth the resources. I mean, I think at this point now we're about 60 people. That's one of the interesting questions we've been thinking about here at The Block. I was talking with one of my colleagues here earlier to sort of take that leap certainly is a big step for a firm that, you know, when you think about an asset manager like Stone Ridge, you'd expect them to be thinking more about where to invest than how to maybe help other people invest. Sure. And, you know, Stone Ridge was founded really under the principle, the premise of how, how do we create financial security for all? Uh, and that shows up in a lot of different ways. And, and we've always lived under three principles, uh, which is really uh, be kind, be focused and be humble. 
And so I, I, I was like, I, I was pretty lucky. I didn't have to convince anyone. Uh, Ross was was already there, and you know, to to his credit, so it's it's actually quite easy to to get things done at Stone Ridge once once we have senior buy-in. I mean, I don't mean to say easy. Like the engineering challenges are hard, and hats off to the engineers that did it. But you know, when we pride ourselves on when we see something we're excited about, we go uh, and and we go hard. And you're you're right. We're we're 60 people and and growing, uh, and we are we are hiring. Uh, you know, reach out careers at nidig.com. Uh, we're we're a fun, quirky, weird bunch that I'd say mixes uh, both the the soberness and professionalism that you have to have to manage money for people like the people we manage money for, uh, but at the same time, try not to take ourselves too seriously. And I, I think that that mix creates a pretty vibrant culture that people are excited about. So if, uh, if you'd like to work with us, re- reach out. Well, I'll um, be waiting for my offer letter in my inbox. I'll let you know what I think about it. <laughs> uh, I think the culture kind of speaks to your background to an extent. I mean, your uh, bachelor's degree was in mathematics and music. It's an interesting juxtaposition. That's right. Uh, I've always been uh, in, interested in in both, and you know, had had the opportunity to to study both, and and took it and enjoyed it a lot. You know, and and really has I, I find that uh, both ideas pop up for me quite often in my in my day to day life. How do they pop up in your work life? How do you think about what you do in in a musical lens? Sure. Uh, you know, lo- lots of different ways um, in, in varying amounts of abstraction, I'd say. So one thing I tend to think a lot about um, is uh, uh, thinking about an idea of both harmony and melody as, as we move through time from a strategic and a resource allocation perspective. You know, so that is at any moment in time, all the different things have to line up appropriately. So you get a, you know, in, in the musical sense, so you get a pleasant harmony, not dissonance. Uh, and, in, and in a work sense, so, so people are working on the right things and strategy uh, works, works well amongst itself, amongst all the different parts of the business. Uh, and then, you know, from, from a melody perspective, every, every individual line needs to move well as well so that if you look at it in isolation, uh, it, in the musical sense, it sounds pleasing. And in the, in the professional sense, you know, it makes sense from one moment to the next, uh, you know, an, an engineer is working on projects that, you know, connect to themselves through time or, you know, salesperson covers the same kind of accounts. So that's, that's, uh, one one idea, you know, there's there's more direct ideas, which is actually every every place I've ever worked, except Stone Ridge and Nidig, that we're about to about to change this. Um, I've I've played in a company band, so excited to get that going at at uh, Nidig again. Just just hired some new people that I think are going to add a lot there. How much of the fifty million in growth equity funding that you guys raised a few months ago? Is going towards the company band? <laughs> None. Ten percent, five percent. No, 30%. we 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 do that on our own time. Oh, okay. Fair enough. That might be a misallocation of of resources. Might might be. We'll see. So let's talk about that. Was my you know bashful way of 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 pivoting to the most recent raise, and then obviously you guys got 
another injection of capital vis-a-vis Mass Mutual in the form of $5 million. Um, that money, um, obviously, you probably needed it, right? I mean, thankfully, you got that in there right before the rally kind of came in in earnest. Uh, I'm looking at a PR Newswire from October 13th. Um, how has most of that money been spent? And I imagine you guys might even need more. I mean, given the size of the market, what, what, what should we expect on that end? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends what you mean by need. So we, we, we actually didn't need the money in any in any kind of you know urgent sense uh the the business actually nicely cash flow positive uh and uh you know being being part of the stone ridge ecosystem has lots of benefits uh including a well capitalized uh main main investor um so we didn't need the money in kind of a traditional startup sense. I, I think we've we've I always. I, mean, I guess I mean it in the sense that you have across the landscape a lot of well-capitalized players, and and if you want to scale and sort of elbow out some of the competition, you might you know need to bring in extra extra capital to maybe fend off a potential firm that might be IPOing at a seventy billion dollar valuation. Yeah, I mean, like you said, we don't really think about elbowing out competition I, I i think you know our view is this is going to be a giant market and there are going to be lots of winners and we, we think we're well positioned to be one of them but we're certainly not going to be the only one but your your point is well taken and it's sort of obviously like we took the money we didn't not take the money um and and there really i'd say two reasons so one is and this is always for us first and foremost we want to have the right strategic partners around the table uh, and so we we saw an opportunity to bring some new people on onto the cap table, including Mass Mutual, that you know could could give us strategic insight uh, over the next let's call it ten years uh, as as this market develops and matures, help us think about unique and novel product development, be partners in in that. Um, so that that's really always where it where it starts for us, um, not not so much the money itself. But then, in in terms of bringing the the cash onto the balance sheet, we we do see lots of opportunities in the space, and being in a position to execute on those opportunities, you know, we want to hire people, we want to acquire companies, we want to build things. So having the cash helps with all of those things. Are you looking to acquire at you know, let's say, a hundred, hundred fifty million dollar valuation, a burgeoning research and data company? We are always open to conversation, <laughs> and I'd say this this year even more. You know, for for us, I'd say there's really a three part framework that we use to think about acquisitions. So the the first first and foremost is the people. So it always starts and stops there. You know, if if the people are great, we we think about making it work. Um, if if people aren't a culture fit, even if we if the strategy or the technology or anything else might work, we've just We've learned not to do that. And then second is, can the acquisition accelerate um, a strategic initiative for us? And then, uh, you know, third, can it add some new capability? For listeners who might have missed um, the joke as a result of my monotone speaking presentation, I was referring to the block and asking if, you know, Robert would acquire us at an 
at an insane valuation, just given the things we're seeing in the market, right? Like with Bax $2 billion valuation. That will help me get that reasonably sized house I've been I've been waiting for for so long. <laughs> but in any case, um, M and A is a hot how, topic. How much? How much for just the mustache, Frank? Uh, that that that's that's a twenty percent premium, I think. On, on <laughs> but we like to talk about the company in terms of our profitability as um, our revenues on a Frank salary adjusted basis, since <laughs> everyone's convinced I'm I'm insanely overpaid which I'm not so sure of. But in any case, the one thing I am sure of is that there is a lot of talk about M&A. And I was just speaking with an investment banker this morning about you know what he's seeing across the market. And so I find it interesting that you guys are, are looking to snap up some companies. And that's definitely something you need some cash on the balance sheet for, because it's something that a lot of folks are are looking at. And I think we're going to see it in a few phases. The first phase, we're going to see companies within our space snap up, not necessarily competition or competitors, but firms that might expand their services. I think we saw that in your acquisition of digital assets data. We're going to see another announcement next week out of a, a major exchange that's similar to an extent. And then we'll next see, I think, in a second phase, maybe um, a large exchange acquire a smaller exchange, et cetera. And then maybe in that third phase, we'll end up seeing larger fintechs or financial services company acquire a company in the crypto space. So M&A is top of mind. IPOs are top of mind. Is that something you think about? Are you, are you thinking about, you know, in your own respect, tapping into the public markets? Uh, we're, we're always thinking about what the right capital strategy is. Again, we're very fortunate to have a small set of highly strategic, highly long-term, uh, highly aligned and supportive investors in the, in the business. So if it ends up being the right thing for us to you know, tell the story of Bitcoin uh, and tell the story of how we're going to get there and, and help our clients do that, then it's certainly something we would consider. If it ends up not being the right thing, then we certainly don't need to. So let's just to close out the conversation. I mean, this has been really interesting. I'm excited for this one to go out, um, not only so our audience can learn about the stuff that you guys are working on, but I think it provides a good temperature for the broader institutional crypto market and, and where we sort of stand. I want to like take the last few moments to um, look to the future for the ending of the show and, and maybe get the crystal ball in front of us. But you see announcements. I mean, this this announcement of Mass Mutual got a lot of folks excited. How many more? We can start maybe with insurance companies and then maybe move on down the list. How many more, you know, major insurance companies do you see making a move? Maybe they're going to you guys, maybe they're going somewhere else. But how many do you anticipate to enter the market this year? Is it gonna be is it gonna be more of a slow trickle or or do you expect FOMO to maybe push them all in? Um, I, you know, hard, hard to say for this year, I, I think over some number of years, hard, hard for me to imagine it's not all of them, you know, and I, I think I would definitely say if, if mass mutual can get there from a diligence perspective, so can the next one. Um, so it's all the, the investment and the operational challenges are all solved, whether it's with us or with somebody else, we think we have a unique niche there, but again, we're, you know, where, wherever it pops up in the market, I, I think it's good for everyone. So I would, you know, hard, hard to say this year, but it's definitely coming. Instead of like, you know, looking at it from a 
a timeline of a year, maybe it's two to three to four to five years. That's that's right. I mean, our our we look at our client segment and franchise. You know, I, I think we have. Uh, I, I don't think I know we have the second largest Bitcoin fund complex after the Grayscale business, and you know the the number of people that are in that over the total number of investors like them in the world is just very, very small. And the extent to which they've allocated versus what they ultimately could allocate at, at full scale is also very, very small. So I, I think you just, you continue to see it, whether you see announcements about it or not, um, it's there, it's happening, it's coming into the market every day. What about publicly traded companies? We have Square, we have MicroStrategy. I don't know the degree to which I'm convinced that this is a phenomenon that's outside of maybe um, some of these more weird companies. I think I say that with all due respect to <laughs> Michael Saylor and Jack Dorsey. Sure. Square. I certainly take sponsor. weird as a compliment, so I, I can't 100%. speak for them, but I know what you mean. Square was the sponsor of this podcast at one point, so um, I say weird with all due respect. But do you see companies that are publicly traded making similar moves and what does maybe the pipeline on that side of the business look like? I do see them making those moves. And I think ultimately for the same reason as insurance companies, which is you have a fiduciary duty to consider whether holding 100% of your assets in dollars uh, is in the best interest of your shareholders. You know, reasonable people can have different opinions about that, and I'm certain that they will have different opinions about that. But I personally don't think that that's, you know, only Jack and only Michael and no one else is going to do a cold analysis of that and not come to that conclusion. Do you expect the sort of timeline to look similar to that of insurance firms wading in? What percentage maybe of the S&P 500 has some sort of Bitcoin allocation? I guess we can count Tesla in there. They just got in and, and they seem to be making that move. Um, but overall, maybe what percentage of the S&P do you expect could, could make a move similar to Square and MicroStrategy? I have no idea. Um, I, you know, again, I would give you the same answer as the insurance company is sort of over a long enough time period. I would say all of them just is that. I don't think that's one year. I don't think that's three years. I don't know if that's 10 years, but I, I think you see all of them at some point. Mm -hmm. And if any of them are listening, I, I'm sure there's got to be at least one CFO of a publicly traded company listening to this show. Don't get nervous, Stephen. <laughs> Steven's listening in. I, I can sense his anxiety just thinking about that. Um, what is your pitch to that person? Yeah, for for long-term allocators, for fiduciaries, I'm confident we have the best product at the best price with the best people, and I would welcome the opportunity to showcase it. All right, there you have it, folks. Um, if you are the CFO of a publicly traded company in the S&P 500, you got to call up Robbie. Maybe afterwards, after you sign the deal, he'll play some bass. Maybe. We'll see. We'll see. What are you most excited about? Aside from, you know, we like to think about the big players waiting in, but, you know, when you think about NIDIC specifically, I'm sure there's got to be some passion project or passion initiative that you're working on that you're super excited about. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'd say for us, it's really, it's two things. So one is 
getting existing financial services incumbents empowered in the space to bring it to their clients. I think that's a big, uh, that that's as big a story, if not bigger in 2021 as the institutional investors coming in. And then the, the second is to borrow slash steal something from, from Jack Mahler's, this idea of Bitcoin, the asset and Bitcoin, the network. So why you ask yourself, why is Bitcoin a compelling investment asset? Well, it's because of it's a burgeoning open source monetary system. And so we have a lot of things that we're thinking about internally that as as the first part, the Bitcoin as an investment asset, that's begun to run under its own power, shifting our attention to driving the second thing, Bitcoin as the open source monetary network. Um, and so a lot of interesting work being done by Elizabeth Stark and the team at Lightning Labs, a lot of interesting work being done by Jack Mahlers and, and his team at, at Zap. If you haven't seen the Strike Global, you should definitely check it out. Um, and, and so really thinking about, okay, how beyond an investment allocation for institutional investors, how do we think about a network that really helps billions of people? That's what we're passionate about. That's awesome. Well, I want to thank you for really peeling back the curtain and, you know, kind of walking us through what the institutional landscape in the crypto world looks like right now and what you expect over the next couple of years. We'll definitely have you back on again, especially after the next big deal that you guys sign. And we'll unpack that when the time comes. Appreciate you coming on the show, Robbie. We'd love to. I appreciate the invitation. appreciate being here. appreciate all the work uh, you do for the market and uh, would love to come back. 